welcome to our national webinar. Thanks for joining us. We've got folks from around the country, which is really pleasing. Um, we should at the outset acknowledge the traditional owners of the, the various lands upon which we meet this morning and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Um, this morning, our national team have put together a bit of an update on what we've seen as some of the key topics emerging through 2020 in the employment and industrial relations area. And you'll hear from four partners in our national team from around the country. Uh, they'll go in this order. Firstly, we'll hear from Drew Pearson in our Sydney office. Um, he'll provide an update on some of the issues that have arisen directly from COVID-19. It's obviously been challenging for employers and employment lawyers. Um, so good morning, Drew. Hi, Anthony. Great to be here. Uh, next, we'll hear from Natalie Gasper, who's in Melbourne. Uh, she'll discuss the IR reform process. I use those words um, somewhat advisedly, um, or perhaps the, the prospect for reform is, is, is more accurate, and provide us with a very quick update on some enterprise bargaining developments through 2020. Um, good morning, Natalie. Good morning, Anthony, and hi, everyone. Welcome to the webinar. Um, then we'll move up to Brisbane, where we'll hear from Kirsty Fachin. She'll address what I guess we've all come to know as the wage theft phenomenon uh, and explain some of the recent developments which are challenging employers. There's a lot of exercises going around in, in major Australian companies uh, motivated by that issue. Um, one of the issues, I guess, which has been less affected by the, the global pandemic. So good morning, Kirsty. Morning, Anthony. Uh, and then finally, we'll go down uh, back to Melbourne and we'll hear from Tony Wood. Tony's got an interesting update on some discrimination and sexual harassment issues. Many of you will be aware that the Human Rights Commission uh, has been quite active um, in this area and uh, a report has recently been released and we'll also hear uh, about some developments in the federal court. So good morning, Tony. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning, everyone else. Uh, we should also um, a shout out, I suppose, to, to all of you in Victoria um, who've been doing it tough down there with the the ongoing lockdowns. I hope that um, you're holding up and we're all hoping outside of Victoria that you guys come through um, the present situation safely and, and in short order. Um, there is a facility on the software um, that you'll be familiar with for questions. Please don't hesitate to send them in. I'll endeavour, time permitting, to um, refer them to the relevant speakers and if we get through our content in a timely way, there'll be some, some time at the end um, to do so. Uh, and then finally, Tony Wood, who has um, championed our workplace training initiatives here at the, at the firm, will, if we've got some time, we'll tell you a little bit about those. So without further ado, um, COVID-19, as I said, it's been a real challenge. Um, I'll swing to Drew now to tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been seeing in your practice and what you'd identify as the main issues, Drew. Thanks, Anthony, and good morning, everyone. It's great to have you uh, all with us in a virtual sense. Um, so just moving through the slides, we have, of course, seen a huge um, degree of change over the past six to, to nine months since the COVID-19 pandemic really happened. And what we saw initially was a move um, in the midst of a crisis where everything that could be done remotely very swiftly moved to being done remotely. Um, businesses were hugely impacted, individuals were hugely impacted um, and we saw very quickly employers, employees working together to find 
solutions that were initially anticipated to be um, for a short period. I, I certainly know that when we were all moving out of our offices in uh, mid to, to late March, none of us would have anticipated that we'd be sitting here in the middle of September, um, three of us from home, two in stage four lockdowns in, in Victoria, um, and then Anthony and, and Kirsty in our offices uh, in Perth and Brisbane, where we've seen a, um, a great easing of restrictions. So we saw a lot of those um, temporary measures put in place very quickly. Um, awards were varied. Uh, we've seen that that has continued to be extended um, over time, but by and large, those variations to awards are typically only getting through the commission where they are by consent between the employer association and um, the, the relevant employee association. Now that creates some issues in uh, industries where there are no um, employee or employer associations that have standing to bring applications and those types of things. Um, so we've seen out of that, the Fair Work Commission issue its discussion draft on working from home arrangements, which is just that it came out in uh, late July and it steps through some indicative issues that parties considering alterations to the industrial uh, framework should be thinking about discussing. Um, I think it's of little practical application at the moment. Um, we will have to wait and see how that space develops before we um, see those kinds of um, working from home arrangements being reflected in our industrial arrangements. And I think for those on the call that have been in this game for uh, any period of time, you'll appreciate that a lot of the time the industrial framework is lagging behind the practices that are necessary um, in a modern uh, workplace environment. So hopefully we'll see um, some positive movements out of that, and I'll leave the legislative reform piece to uh, to Nat and Anthony to uh, touch on later on. And then um, 2020, of course, is also uh, a year in which we have the four yearly reviews of modern awards kicking off. Uh, we will continue to see those um, rolling through. I think the biggest issues in modern award land uh, today continue to be annualised salary arrangements, a lot of which um, kicked off in the first and second quarter of this year, and obviously compliance projects that Kirsty will will touch on. So moving away from the awards themselves and um, into the COVID-19 recovery stage, on the next slide I've just set out the um, lifeline of the JobKeeper uh, regime as we've seen it develop, and I think that this is something that will continue uh, to develop. So of course back in March, in the immediate uh, response to the crisis, we saw the implementation of JobKeeper as a way for the government to push out um, economic support to individuals and in turn to business. There was a single um, eligibility test for employers and for employees, and the scheme applied um, on a broad brush basis. There were particular carve-outs, but by and large, if you're an, an Australian employer, an Australian employee who suffered a um, a significant reduction in your turnover, then JobKeeper eligibility um, came in. It was initially in um, through until September. In July, we saw the first of the tinkering um, with the, the scheme, and that's what I'm calling the JobKeeper evolution phase. Um, we saw updates around the periphery, so things like the childcare industry being moved out of JobKeeper um, proper and industry-specific uh, regimes being put in place. 
And we are about to head into the era of JobKeeper 2.0, where the new payment rates will kick in from the 28th of September. Um, so we've seen a kick in where if you're working more than 20 hours um, per week and you're eligible and your employer remains eligible, then the pay rate will drop from $1,500 a fortnight to $1,200. If you're working under 20 hours a week, then the pay rate will drop from $1,500 to $750 per fortnight. So we're seeing a, a bit of a response of the government to some of the issues that were being encountered around um, casual employees or part-time employees, perhaps, who typically worked less than um, the amount they would need to to earn that rate, and then employees not being willing to work uh, beyond their usual hours. So we'll um, also see from the 28th of September the um, splitting of what I'm calling the JobKeeper directions from the JobKeeper payment itself. So whilst an employer may not be eligible for um, JobKeeper assistance, so the payment won't come through uh, because their uh, decline in turnover uh, doesn't meet the thresholds, um, they may still retain access to JobKeeper directions. And so that's something that a lot of clients are looking at now. If you are taking advantage of um, or you're utilising JobKeeper directions, it'll be important to review that process now um, and either extend them or look at other arrangements to um, continue to manage your workforce um, as we head into this next phase of um, the path towards, I think, the new normal. Um, on the final slide that I've got there, uh, on this session, uh, it's really a discussion that we're having with most of our clients around what does the future look like? Um, and this is not going to be a one size fits all uh, piece, even within one geographic location. We're seeing different hotspots um, in Sydney pop up from time to time. For example, um, I know taking my son to a swimming lesson the other day, there was a um, sign in sheet and it said, if you live in the 2011 postcode, please don't come in. Um, so I think that we're going to continue to see those types of localised management um, of COVID-19 related issues. Um, but at a, at a more holistic level, um, we all need to be looking at how our organisations can continue to adapt to this changing environment um, that we're seeing. If you look around Australia, again, at the, the five of us on the line, we're all experiencing very different um, impacts of COVID-19 on how we work and what we can and can't do um, on a personal level. And when we look at it globally with a lot of our clients, they're having to implement different um, measures, temporary measures to address the pandemic. Um, but there is also a lot of uh, looking forward being done. Um, so on the slide there, there's just a couple of the different arrangements um, that people are looking at. JobKeeper stand downs, Fair Work Act stand downs, um, fairly standard, I think, over the past six months. We've all had more work in the stand down space um, than we have in the past 20 years. Um, what, what I'm talking to a lot of clients about are the kind of repurposing um, of employees and talent, the augmentation or automation of certain parts of roles that we've seen during COVID. Um, and during the crisis response phase that we've been able to find better ways of working. Um, and now looking forward into reorganisations and restructures, uh, we're also seeing uh, the JobKeeper regime and its impacts on corporate transactions and structuring um, coming through. So that's probably a, a quick little snapshot, Anthony. 
Thanks, Drew. Um, one of the things that stuck out for me is you, you've mentioned agreed changes to arrangements and new ways of working on that slide. Um, are you seeing any um, themes emerge where employers are seeking to make, you know, permanent or semi-permanent changes to their workforces? And, um, you know, how, how's that going? Look, it, it's many and varied. There's definitely a lot of efficiencies are being gathered. I think there's positives um, from both perspectives as well. A, a lot of employees are saying, I'm really enjoying not having to make the commute into a central work location, whether that's in the CBD um, or elsewhere, and I can be really effective working remotely, um, whether that's from home or from another location that's closer to their home. So we're definitely seeing a move in that space where organisations are looking at what their real estate requirements are, um, what the kind of goal will be when people are returning to the office. Um, and I think there's been a real shift away from the mentality of the, the starting point is that people are in the office for their working week. There's a real recognition that people can be very effective um, remotely. Um, on the flip side, I think there's also been a, an acknowledgement that getting people together in the same place um, is really important for culture, for learning, for development. Um, and so we're seeing that kind of coming through in the way that people are um, engaging their forward planning. I guess with changes, um, you know, when things get really bad, one of the things which employers need to confront uh, is redundancies. And of course, redundancy is uh, one of those, you know, since 1982, very heavily regulated areas with, with notice, consultation, payment. I might just throw to Natalie, because I know you've been involved in a bit of this work, Nat, um, in COVID. Are you seeing any, yeah. any theme uh, emerging in that, in that sort of space? Yeah, Anthony, we are starting to see a bit in this space and I think it's going to continue to increase. So as we see businesses come off JobKeeper and start to reopen and face demand, which is fluctuating and uncertain, a move away from permanent workforces towards more workforce agility. And, and what that translates to, quite frankly, is for many businesses looking at making a proportion of their permanent workforce redundant and um, lifting and, and re redesigning the labour mix to provide for a greater casual component in their workforces. And so we're seeing that in industries in particular, like retail and hospitality. So um, what that means is that technically redundancies are occurring and in many circumstances, employees are looking to mutually agree and are willing to continue working, albeit in quite a different capacity. There's a bit of tension at this stage. Um, there was a, recently a federal court decision in uh, Broadlex and the UWU that concerned this concept of unilateral termination at the hands of an employer and how that impacts redundancy pay where there is a reduction in hours. Um, it does seem to be a bit of a quirk in the legislation and, and you know, there's a, there's a real question mark as to whether that's something that um, can and will be addressed with potential reforms. But um, just one for employers to watch out for, I suppose, that process does require a bit of rigour and forward thinking, particularly in light of that recent decision, Anthony. Okay. Um, just finally, Drew, um, I suppose some would say uh, 2020 has been a bit of a lemon. Um, 
blue sky thinking, a bit of forward thinking, um, how do employers, you know, make a bit of lemonade? Um, what are the opportunities that emerge from, from a crisis like this, you know, in a nutshell from, from your perspective? Look, I, I think by and large, crises tend to bring out the best of your workplace culture, um, the best kind of innovation and those types of things. We've had a real shake up and, you know, that lemonade is definitely well stirred. Um, but what this period has given us is kind of a blank sheet of paper to start replanning our workforce strategies and really focus on how we can do um, the best for the organisations and um, the employee groups. So I think that it really is an opportunity to take stock now. We've got kind of six to nine months of um, some pretty choppy waters behind us. We're seeing some real glimmers of hope across the country. Um, and as we continue to um, work through this kind of JobKeeper phase through to next March, there's a real opportunity over the coming five months for employers to take stock, look at what the strategy is, where we need to get to as a business, and to really come up with some innovative and flexible arrangements that can provide great outcomes for the organisation and great outcomes for the employees. All right, very, very good. Thanks, Drew. Um, I'll throw it to Natalie now. Um, people like me who have been around for in this area for a long time, you know, reform is one of those things which tends to happen in, in big bangs and then we have lengthy periods of a stable um, sort of regulation. Um, and we saw the government when COVID came out really shaken out of its reform um, mindset uh, and, and really throwing to the parties to say, come up with some agreed changes that will help the country. Mm. Uh, can you let us know um, your thoughts on, on where we're up to? Yeah, look, Anthony, it's funny, isn't it? I feel like you and I over the last couple of years have done a number of presentations and articles talking about the potential for IR form. It probably feels like for the first time in a while we might be able to get somewhere with something and I do think this pandemic has been the platform uh, for the government to really start to bring in about some change. I think the signals from uh, the Prime Minister are unlike those that we've seen for quite a long time. Um, he recently commented, it was back in May, I think, for the first time that the system's not working. And that's the first indication um, that we've had from the government since it was re-elected in uh, 2019 that it does have some appetite for some reform in this space. Um, we've commented in the past, of course, on the irony of, of this position that we find ourselves with, that there was a reticence thus far for the current government to um, do anything substantial with this legislation that, of course, it inherited from Gillard's Labor government. So let me just talk through the group um, on this, the next slide, what, um, what the, the program is to move through these. So the government, uh, Christian Porter as the minister, has comprised a number of working groups, there's five, um, for potential areas for legislative reform. These working groups are comprised of both uh, employer industry organisations as well as unions. And um, the aim of these working groups is to see if the parties can find some sort of consensus and area for legislative change. Um, 
when Christian Porter, the minister, was um, asked about this by um, a, a reporter who made some wry remark about, well, you know, there's not going to be any sort of consensus on these sorts of things, he, um, he immediately sprung to the defence of these working groups who um, he said they've been working quite effectively, um, he sat in on a number of them and um, does believe that it will, be, um, uh, will produce some results. Now, phase two of these working groups will see, as we understand, and um, the latest, is that there will be introductions into Parliament for proposed amendments to the current legislative scheme in February of next year. Um, that indication has not changed. So let me just quickly touch on um, some of the working groups and, and what we can expect they might address. Um, just a footnote, these are the five areas of reform. Um, if I can be indulged with a soapbox moment for just a second, I do think that there are other areas, of course, that might um, warrant some, some further review. Look, transfer of business uh, is one of them. I think a lot of organisations just on the back of um, Drew's uh, comments in this pandemic environment are looking at implementing restructures and rest redundancies and within a corporate group um, with a common goal, I would have thought of um, enhancing employment opportunities across a corporate group. That, that does seem one area that uh, is screaming for some, some attention. So the first working group is looking at casuals and fixed term employees and it seems like one uh, clear possible outcome from that um, surely is, is an enhanced or a, a revisited definition of what a casual employee in fact is and um, Kirsty I, I know you've got some comments and I might just um, throw to you in a second about uh, Rosato in here, but we we are faced currently with an environment in which, um, you know, the, the courts have doubled down onto the definition as to casual employees and what the implications of that mean for, for businesses. Thanks, Nat. Percy, um, oh, sorry, Anthony. I was going to say, you've been involved in mining and I suppose that's where the scheme case uh, originally came from and that's where the Rosado case came from. So given your experience, what should this working group be looking at and what would ideally come out of it? Um, well, what it's looking at and what will ideally come out of it might be two different things. Um, but in terms of the scheme and the Rosato decisions coming out of the mining sector, that is very much a anti-casualisation um, campaign that's being run there for quite some time. Um, so I think Philosophically, the two groups sitting together um, in that working group are probably at very different points. Um, Nat mentioned before the need for agility in workplaces post-COVID. I'm not sure that any definition, if one is to come out of that group, is going to help with that agility um, in any way, shape or form. But what I think we might get out of the working group at least is certainty, if not flexibility, so that are particularly our large corporates who do have either access to casuals or use casuals directly, um, can at least plan their labour labor models accordingly. I think at the moment there's just too much uncertainty, particularly, and I'll talk to the set-off provisions and the limitations of the amending regulation uh, shortly, but let's just aim for that. Some, some certainty, but not necessarily the flexibility that we're looking for. Um. Thanks, Kirsty. Can I jump in on the awards a bit um, here, Nat? Um, because I do sort of shake my head that this is one of the topics. Awards have been 
rationalised and simplified and then modernised. Um, and as Drew pointed out, the, the four-yearly review process commenced in 2014. And those of us that subscribe to the Commission's news feed are still seeing decision after decision after decision come out six years later. Um, I really wonder what it is the government's trying to achieve by putting this to a working group. And I'd like to ask you, Tony, you've been reading these things as, as, as long as any of us. Um, what can actually be done to, to de-complify, or, or to, to get rid of the complexity and simplify the award system? Ah, uh, gee, that's a hard question. I mean, you can abolish awards. I mean, that's, that's the most simple solution. And that, look, that's practically not on the agenda, unfortunately. Um, but remember, the, the way awards evolved was, you know, we didn't have a safety net. We didn't have the legislative safety net in the form of the national employment standards, for instance, that we have now. Um, I, I, I understand the political realities and the difficulties associated with reform of, of awards, but I mean, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need awards. There's no need for having separate uh, provisions for dealing with annual leave or, or, or any of the minutiae for different categories of employees. And if there are important base uh, entitlements, then, then you'd, you'd expand the NES, uh, in my view, in an ideal world. But at least um, what they can do practically and maybe learn from the lessons, the uh, for instance, the, the annualised wage provisions uh, decision, um, which, which implemented this year, the most complex um, and difficult to implement arrangements and employers are understandably confused about when an employee is covered by an annualised wage, when an employee who is otherwise a high earning uh, white collar employee particularly might be covered by a common law annualised salary arrangement the confusion between whether you can have both coexisting, at least in that level, there needs to be um, some some greater certainty. And uh, but I, you know what, I really don't know whether the reform legislatively, in that sense, is going to going to address it because we already have a statutory benchmark that says awards are meant to be minimum instruments uh, and capable of easy understanding and application. Now, now unfortunately. You know, you confer upon the Commission the power to deal with those issues and the Commission is, you know, a, a paternalistic body and it wants to protect the, the full extent mm. of the workforce and that results in over-regulation. So there's got to be a cut-through moment, in my view, and maybe COVID actually might provide the, the impetus for that because there's a lot in particular of white-collar employees who are covered and regulated by awards whose span of hours is, is you know, expanded dramatically. People like me, not award covered, but not unusual, might be working between nine, having a huge break, come back at, at 9 p.m. And, and do a couple of hours because that suits me. But mm. the awards don't contemplate that type of flexibility. They're very regimented in the sense of one size fits all. So there's got to be a greater expansion of the ability to reach either individual agreements flexibility provisions that are really meaningful. Um, Tony, I knew you'd have a contribution to make in that area. Um, throw back to you, Nat, to, um, to finish off the presentation. Thanks, Anthony. Um, look, the, another area of focus for one of the working groups is enterprise agreements. Um, and this is born out of, from uh, the ACTU side saying, well, um, 
but blaming enterprise agreements for the wage, stagna wage stagnation in this country. From the employer side of things, you can see the enterprise agreements um, that are being made continuing to, to reduce and they're, you know, um, generalising but going in and saying, well, why would I put myself through this pain? What am I going to get out of it? It is a system um, with a great deal of complexity. We expect one of the key focus areas for this working group is going to be the better off overall test, um, which leading back to Anthony, um, Tony Wood's comment, sorry, um, and yours as well, Anthony, is, is one area that we can expect might receive some focus. Another area is uh, compliance and enforcement, and I'm not gonna steal uh, Kirsty's uh, thunder in this regard with respect to some of the developments that we've seen in this space with respect to wage theft at a state level, but um, there is the possibility for an overriding federal regime. And again, one of the areas of discussion uh, presumably will be the increased calls for criminalisation of what is described as wage theft, of course, a highly um, perjurative term which, which uh, connotes a, a, a deliberate intent to deprive. So I'll leave it with that. I'm going to um, throw back to you, Anthony, for your, your passion and baby on Greenfields agreements and particularly uh, over in the West. <laughs> yeah, look, just briefly, I'll, I thought this, it's, it's an interesting area because before the last election, Bill Shorten did uh, commit the Labor Party to implementing reforms which would allow greenfield agreements to be entered for the life of a project, not for six years or eight years or 10 years. Um, and I think we need to look higher and say what we need in the country are projects that are big projects, snowy scheme style in their significance. The Gorgon project, largest project in the history of Australia since the snowy project. What's the next one of those? And I don't think you prepare the system by saying we'll make four years, six years, or you know the unions want four and the employers want eight, so we'll go to six. So what I really um, hope comes out of this is some recognition that you need certainty to get companies to come and invest in Australia and assist in, in our rebuilding. Uh, back to you, Nat. Thanks. Look, I just want to take the group through what we're seeing in the bargaining sphere. It, it's a bit of what we've been seeing, to be honest, for the last year or so. There's nothing particularly groundbreaking in this regard. Um, just recently, there was another decision which um, confirmed the Fair Work Commission's application of the Better Off Overall Test, that being one in which the potential hypothetical outer limits of an enterprise agreement are tested. Um, and, um, you know, we've got on that slide there the frog in the boiling water um, scenario. So what that means, so often I'm still having uh, work with businesses who are doing a rollover type agreement. The same thing was approved a few years ago and now they're looking at um, re-approving or having that, that um that enterprise agreement approved in a rollover sense and the commission through its triage uh, member assist um, process coming through with all these issues that haven't come up for the first time. So um, it, the, the law hasn't changed, but the emphasis on it has changed. And, um, you know, we can pinpoint precisely when that occurred. That that was um, the decision in Hart and Coal Supermarkets where the Commission um, for the first time, I think it's fair to say, took adopted a far more rigorous approach to that. 
The other aspect for organisations to keep mindful of and, and we can expect to continue is um, the rigour uh, that is expected in respect of explanation to employees over the terms of the agreement and um, the, the real focus on the substance of those uh, explanations just as much as um, how those explanations occurred. Look, it still is taking quite a long time for enterprise agreements to be approved. And so there's a question, a genuine question as to what um, parties are doing um, during that waiting game um, period, particularly when organisations have either looked to vary their enterprise agreement or implement some flexibilities to deal with the pandemic. We have seen a bit of a triage process where those sorts of applications are moving through the system a, a little more quicker. It is interesting to see the Commission's continued approach to um, stepping into the shoes of the agreement. And, and I think there is um, a, a question mark as to whether or not they're perhaps going a bit too far and going into the subjective minds of the employees as to whether or not they can genuine, they have genuinely agreed to um, the terms of the agreement. So, of course, look, undertakings um, continue to be the um, the, the modus operandi, the, the tool of choice of the Commission, and um, I, I think we can expect that to continue. I'm sure many of you who are joining this call today will have been asked to and have indeed supplied undertakings um, to assist the agreement with its approval. And Anthony, I know you've got some views as to um, the extent and how far those undertakings go and move away from what indeed was genuinely agreed to by employees when they voted up the agreement. Yeah, look, I just wanted to call out very briefly a full bench decision from a couple of months ago. It was a pretty senior full bench that acknowledged that when the Act says that an undertaking cannot significantly change the agreement, what that means is that the undertaking can in fact change the agreement. And so I'm encountering, as many of our listeners probably are, this quasi-arbitration process where you file your application, the Commission will decide that the agreement ought to do something else. It ought to be more clear in saying how it interacts with the NES, for example, and requiring, and you get these emails back, it doesn't ask, it requires these undertakings. Um, I do think employers need to be alive to the fact that if you can push back, and if you do that politely and you do it constructively, um, in my recent experience, as recently as yesterday, the Commission will listen and will recognise that its concern is not really a concern and the undertaking is not required. But that's, as I agree with you, Nat, that's going to become a bigger part of the system rather than a smaller part. Just one of the questions we've got in, I might quickly address about awards. And the listener correctly points out that originally they're to, meant to protect lower paid employees. And the question is, um, is there a possibility for a proposal that an income threshold can be used? An ironic question. In, in 2007, at the election, the Forward with Fairness policy, which led to the Fair Work Act, actually proposed, and Julia Gillard stood up and said awards shouldn't apply to employees who earn over $100,000. Uh, and then we saw the higher income guarantee provisions. So a range of provisions were put in the Act. One could say that they were never intended to be effective or workable or usable. Uh, and lo and behold, they haven't been. So um, there is some precedent for an approach where there's an exemption over a certain rate. So I think it's a good question and one that we need to look out for, and hopefully there'll be some impetus in that working group to, to addressing it. Um, 
Over to you, Kirsty. This is a really fascinating one and looking forward to, to hearing your report. Thank you. Um, so just moving on to the first slide, that's just a, um, Nat spoke before about the emotive use of language when we talk about wage theft. It does have two prongs to it and the Ombudsman is certainly focused on both of those prongs. So we're talking about the exploitative nature of intentional uh, underpayments and there was media this morning about some of that in relation to backpackers in the horticultural sector. So that's certainly, although that said, the Ombudsman was referred to as a fluffy bear, I think, in relation to its ability to enforce um, provisions in that farming sector. Um, but it certainly remains a key focus of the Ombudsman for this year coming and for the months just past for corporate underpayments. And those are the less emotive language, but still a very, very um, key focus for the Ombudsman. So they're certainly, from the Ombudsman's priority perspective, just um, set out on the next slide, is some of the sectors that the Ombudsman have noted as their current priorities for the coming year. And it goes without saying that some of the um, fast food, as I said before, horticultural and franchises are still there on the list, but underlined on the slide for you is the um, large corporate underpayments reference. That comes with a bit of a sting in the tail as well. So not just the fact that um, we are a sector of our own to be um, prioritised, but also that the Ombudsman has highlighted and been very vocal about the fact that they will be looking at accessorial liability. Uh, and so from a board's perspective, from senior employees, um, payroll compliance assistance, um, all of these people and in fact third parties such as lawyers and accountants or payroll providers who are contributing to corporates um, payroll compliance and governance processes are essentially in the mix potentially and the Ombudsman is not afraid to be using the provisions of the Fair Work Act to bring them in so through section 550. So that's something from a board briefing perspective that we've seen a lot of our clients focusing on recently. Um, the majority of clients that we're working with are already very proactive in this space. We've seen enough media over the last six, nine, 12 months to make sure that this stays front of mind um, the majority of the time. But the other thing that is um, the bubbles along for some large corporates is just being aware of the market disclosure requirements as well. So you might have the ombudsman knocking on your door um, in relation to why you didn't notify um, earlier or why you didn't self-confess earlier in the piece, but you also have those market, some corporates have those market disclosure considerations as well. Um, so you've got a lot of, um, I think the term was frogs on the in the boiling pot before. We've got lots of frogs um, floating around in our, in our boiling pot in terms of trying to juggle the various attacks on payroll processes. If we think we're 10 years on from the introduction of modern awards, so we've got a lot of um, corporates who are renewing payroll systems, having a look um, post the annualised wage arrangements that Tony touched on before. And it's through those processes that some of the unintentional um, in coming to the fore. Um, there's, not a, there's not a positive obligation to self-confess or self-notify to the Ombudsman. But undoubtedly, some of you on this call will have received the correspondence that's just noted in the top right of this slide um, that's come from the Ombudsman and has been 
um, sent to a number of boards for some of our corporate clients as well. And they're now saying that from a um, enforcement perspective, they're not afraid to litigate the significant underpayments. So a serious contravention under the Fair Work Act, and they will still use their enforcement um, provisions to do that. But what they're saying is that they're taking a practical approach to self-reporting. So if as a corporate you identify simple and isolated over a short period of time, for example, less than 12 months, then those don't need to be reported provided that you rectify them quickly, you um, identify to the employees how they occurred and you make sure that they are not going to happen again. Um, for all other more serious contraventions, the Ombudsman is strongly encouraging corporates to self-identify those compliance issues. That won't protect you from uh, litigation if that's where the Ombudsman decides they want to go with it, but it does open up other areas for consideration such as enforceable undertakings being negotiated as an alternative. Um, and so on, just in terms of broader reform in this area, I think both Anthony and Nat touched on the fact that there is wage reform legislation across both state and uh, contemplated from a federal perspective. So just on the next slide is a bit of a handy map um, that sets out the status of wage theft reforms across the country. No doubt a number of you would have come across the um, Victoria and Queensland legislation that's already been passed. So we will see in those um, states shortly that there'll be criminal penalties, but those criminal, criminal penalties are limited to those areas at the moment where it is a dishonest withholding of wages. So just picking up again on that emotional distinction between the unintentional and the intentional, if there is a dis dishonest withholding of wages or other entitlements, then you could end up as an individual director, for example, with up to 10 years jail. We'll wait and see how, how um, serious a contravention there has to be for that. But the other angle of the legislative reform is the fines that are now involved. So to take Victoria for, as an example, you're looking at almost $200,000 for an individual and almost a um, million dollars for a corporate as a fine under that state legislation. And Anthony, um, I think you nodded to it before, but the federal government has made commitments to legislating criminal penalties, um, again, for deliberate and systemic underpayments. So that's something uh, certainly that's on the reform agenda. I'm not sure, Anthony, if you had any comment in relation to where you think the federal government might head with that and how soon? Well, before the last election, the Commonwealth government's policy was restricted to the outcomes of the Migrant Workers Task Force report. So their scope, if you like, was quite restricted. And one could see that there would be no inconsistency which would affect the operation of the state schemes. But given the, um, particularly in Victoria, given the, the comprehensive and the um, quite penal consequences that these wage theft reforms bring. I think it's a, an open question about whether the federal government might say, we're going to create a national standard, and that means that the state legislation that's inconsistent with that standard will, will not apply. But just before you moved on to Rosato, it's really fascinating when I see slides like this, that the modern day employers have got a well-funded FWO uh, that's active, They've got um, these ref uh, legislative obligations that criminalise underpayments. 
I mean, in the old days, we had claims from unions uh, who would, that would be processed on behalf of individual employees. Now there's class actions. Um, perhaps throw to you, Nat. I mean, how does the, the class actions and the typical union actions um, exist with this regulatory activity and, and this state legislation? Uh, look, Anthony, we're seeing it play out for the first time in this country, to be honest. And um, I commend to those listening that are, are interested in class actions in this space on our website. There's um, some class action webinars that sort of delve into this. And one of those explored the increase in um, employment-related class actions in matters such as the misclassification of workers as casuals, the underpayment of wages. Now, as you say, that's a domain traditionally uh, litigated by unions on behalf of their members as a, as a group. We've got the Ombudsman um, very actively and unashamedly prosecuting and, and holding employers to account in that space. And now we've got class actions to contend with as well. Um, to be frank, we, we don't quite know how it's gonna play out, but I imagine it's going to to test um, the court's, you know, case management principles in dealing with matters efficiently and the like. And, you know, of course, courts do have the powers to, to stay applications or, or case manage appropriately. And I expect that's the way it'll, it, it will continue to go, Anthony. Um, thanks, Nat. Um, back to you to tell us about uh, Rosato, Kirsty. Thanks, Anthony. And just before um, I move on to the next slide um, and describe where we've landed with Rosato, just to Nat's comment um, and yours, Anthony, about previously having just the unions as the opposition in terms of underpayment claims. They are certainly, uh, let's just say, getting the knickers in a bit of a twist in relation to the class action firms. So they are popping their own um, propaganda out there saying that employees should become members and instead of um, giving all of their money away to lawyers and litigate litigation funders, they ought to be paying their membership and the unions will make sure they get their money. So there is some tension there as well. And that goes to, as Nat was saying, that case management process, because you could end up with class action ombudsman and the union claims um, against you at the same time. Um, so just in relation to uh, Rosato, everyone on this call will no doubt um, understand where we've landed with it in terms of the finding that casual workers who've got a regular predictable shift and a firm advance commitment um, are permanent workers, not casual. So that's um, a bit more of a description as to where we've landed on the definition of a casual at this point in time. Um, but from an economic effect perspective, um, one of the most important aspects of the law as it stands at the moment, noting that this is um, there is a special leave application to the High Court in relation to this judgment, um, but the economic effect at this point in time is that it essentially enables a casual, a formally anointed casual employer, employee and paid as such to double dip. Um, and that is a description in in relation to the 25% casual loading that's been paid for the duration of the casual employment. Um, but then they're also able to claim for the entitlement. So as a, once we're described as a permanent employee, then we have the access to the accrued annual leave, personal leave, entitlements, et cetera, that they were paid compensation for through the loading. Um, unfortunately, as it stands, um, we are in a position where the amending regulation hasn't been able to be utilised and that amending regulation was intended to have application where an employee had mistakenly been classified as casual um, and then thereafter is claiming national employment standard benefits such as annual leave and personal leave. Um, but there's a little bit of a 
uh, I suppose, bump in the road there because it does only apply to a casual who has claimed permanency and has been identified as a permanent employee and where the loading that's been paid to that, that employee is a very distinct amount that's been paid to compensate them for the um, national, stand, national Employment Standards Entitlement. But importantly, the amending regulation only applies where the person has made a claim to be paid an amount in lieu of those NES entitlements. And where we landed in Rosato was that the employee concerned in that matter was not claiming for the entitlements in lieu, rather he was claiming for access to the entitlements and the accrued entitlements. So Anthony, to go to your point about just how muddled this area currently is, the amending regulation obviously had an intention uh, and that was a well-meaning intention to assist with the double dipping, but post Rosato decision, it really calls into question um, its utility, I think. Um, so that's a, in a very nutshell where we've landed in terms of uh, set off provisions and double dipping and where the amending regulation doesn't really have the effect it was intended to have. Okay, um, thank you. I noticed that your next slide, Kirsty, has a helpful grab bag of matters for employers to, to be thinking about. Is there anything there in particular you wanted to draw attention to? Um, one of one of the things that Tony Wood and I were just chatting about before this session is where you do have a number of casuals in the workforce, just while the um, jurisprudence is what it is at the moment, you might want to be taking steps to um, review those casuals, review the labour model that you're working under, but in particular, have a look at your template casual engagement contract and consider putting in a set of provision, well, two, two things actually. One, make sure you've got a very clearly identifiable loading that is being paid in compensation for national employment standards entitlements. And then separately, put in a set of provision that at least gives you the opportunity to recover the casual loading aspect in the event that that casual employee is later deemed to be a permanent employee. So being explicit about that. Um, and then the other thing that we've seen a number of our clients doing, and I think they should continue to do, is casual conversion campaigns. And the majority of the time, casuals are not asking to convert, but we're running those campaigns and then keeping a note of the response to that. So that later in time, admittedly, it's just a factual part of the factual matrix. But given that we look at the overarching relationship and um, when looking at the permanency point, we then have those casual conversion campaigns where those individuals have clearly indicated they want to continue as a casual. So there are various, various things. Um, the list on the slide relates to payroll compliance projects more broadly, but I think that casual workforce piece is important at the moment, particularly given this is an area for reform. Thanks, Kirsty. That was fantastic and uh, yeah, great advice on the, the casual conversion um, campaigns. Tony Wood will change gears and, and hear from you about um, the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment and, and some discrimination issues. Huh. Well, yeah, a change, a, a dramatic change of pace. Look, um, I, I think we've about 10 minutes, so I just want to cover a few uh, big issues off in, in that time, Anthony. Uh, maybe the first point is just to understand context. and. Um, if you go to the next slide, we, we've, we've got a summary uh, put together really of, of uh, Kate Jenkins, who's the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner's report, uh, which was released, I think, in March of this year. And it, it has a, a, a slate of, of um, uh, recommendations, uh, both in a sense legislatively and also, I think, culturally. 
uh, to address the difficulties and problems that arise with uh, sexual harassment and, and her report, of course, concentrating on workplace sexual harassment. But the, the broader context, and maybe no one really knew in Australia, um, despite the global hashtag MeToo movement, um, we've really created this perfect storm. So we've had that background in the last few years. We've had this report, which really is a world first um, to, to look at it in, in any granularity. And then we've got like these events that have occurred just you know within recent months. Um, we've had the Dyson Hayden uh, furor. Uh, you know, we've had obviously very recently the situation with um, AMP, um, QBE. So really large businesses having to grapple with uh, not only instances of sexual harassment, and that's not new because most of our clients have had to deal with those issues themselves over recent years. But uh, the added um, uh, dilemma, if you like, of, uh, of additional media scrutiny and uh, shareholder activism and you know with AMP for instance um, that that may never have developed uh, the kind of energy uh, that it did without uh, the the role of uh, institutional shareholders their expectations and demands and you know in a sense also I suppose you can look at the power of the uh, the superannuation funds as well so all of those issues come to together to create what I think is an interestingly, an opportunity for significant reform. And so Kate's report has really come at a great time for people who think that there's insufficient attention to uh, to these issues. So on the slide, there's, there's some data that demonstrates, uh, uh, that informed the report, if you like, about the instances of, of workplace sexual harassment. And it is overwhelmingly, but not exclusively, an issue um, that, that impacts women in workforces. And as, as the slide itself notes, um, is, is more often prevalent in circumstances where uh, there are gender imbalances within particular sectors uh, and, um, and, and industries. Um, and, and the report went into you know, as many hundreds of pages and there are about 55 separate recommendations. But some of the key um, recommendations uh, are about reinstitutionalising additional powers to existing bodies, the creation of, uh, of a new council, effectively a, a workplace sexual harassment council that's got power to report and investigate on, on these areas and to, to ensure there's greater collaboration between the institutions like the Ombudsman's Office, the Fair Work Commission um, and uh, the Institute of Company Directors, a whole range of other parties being brought in to address the, the problems. Um, a couple of key issues maybe just to, to highlight, Anthony. Uh, the first is the recommendation or the observation first from uh, Kate's report that employers take a lot more seriously um, issues at work in relation to workplace health and safety. And they know that there's a liability, that if there's an incident, it need not be a fatality. If there's just any incident, they know they're liable. And there are inspectors and investigations and reporting obligations that arise in that space. Yet um, the impact of sexual harassment is in many respects um, odious, equally odious and impactful on, on victims of, of, of that. And yet there isn't the same obligation. In fact, the obligation arises on the individual, if you like, to prosecute a case. Someone say, look, I'm a victim, um, and then the onus is on that victim primarily to make a complaint, whether 
uh, under a grievance process or, or through uh, the uh, state commissions, equal opportunity commissions or the sex um, discrimination commission itself. So what Kate's report says is let's create this positive duty on an employer to actually redress and address the issues. And I'll, I'll come back to the, that in a minute in relation to that provision already really existing only in one jurisdiction in Australia, which is in Victoria. But a couple of the other points just to highlight, um, providing um, an ability for the Fair Work Commission uh, to create a, an additional jurisdiction. I can see people going, oh, no, not more. Um, similar to the anti-bullying jurisdiction for to, to provide for orders to stop sexual harassment. Um, and amending the Act, the, the Fair Work Act again, which is the legislation most of us are familiar with, to be able to expressly prohibit and call out sexual harassment um, as both the ground effectively for general protections complaints, but also um, to be a valid reason for uh, not just termination, but summary termination. So adding those kind of uh, additional institutional uh, powers um, is is going to be an area for reform, which, by the way, Anthony, I think we'll probably see not until next year, given we're flooded with um, with COVID overload at the moment, both at uh, you know certainly at a government level. The other point, maybe I just wanted to highlight, was the use of NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. Um, the report doesn't reach a finding on that, but obviously the Me Too movement uh, in the US has seen a huge uh, impetus on this issue and it being used uh, by by some employers or perceived to be used by some employers as a, a prohibition to or an, you know, effectively silencing complainants. And by silencing people, there's no discussion, there's no opportunity for people to say, look, this is really bad, we need to stop it. People are paid, if you like, hush money, um, and, and therefore we, we never know incidents occur, and therefore um, the problem is swept under the carpet. At least that's the, uh, the, the perception. Um, many employers are addressing that both globally um, in the UK, uh, in the US, we're seeing a number of employers renouncing the use of NDAs and even in Australia, uh, recently the B Australian, BHP, um, has said it will not use uh, NDAs um, to, to silence uh, employees. And they and many other employers, or many, a number of employers are attempting to implement one of the uh, one of the recommendations in the report, this, uh, the, uh, the sexual harassment report, in terms of taking a so-called victim-centric approach, consider putting yourself in the shoes of the victim. What can an employer do to create a situation which is less adversarial and more supportive of uh, people coming forward and encouraging bystanders and others? So. You know, there are some of the key elements that come out of the report. I think there's going to be massive change and there's certainly a lot of room for legislation um, uh, if you follow the report in, in the next 12 months, Anthony. I, I might just comment, if you go to the next slide um, as well, what is, what is, what is this so-called positive duty if it's implemented? Uh, federally, well, we do know in Victoria, uh, Section 15, 15 of the Victorian Act um, already says that there is a positive duty on employers in Victoria only at this stage to take what's called reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate um, sex discrimination and sexual harassment as far as po possible. And Kate's report 
uh, effectively, not surprisingly, by the way, Kate was a former uh, commissioner in Victoria, so is aware of those provisions, but recommended in, in this report that there be um, uh, proportionate and reasonable responses by employers taking into account a variety of factors, the size of their business, um, the, the resources available to the particular employer, other, other facts and circumstances, so quite a, a broad grab bag. But that would actually, in, if you follow Kate's report, would, would be implementable and prosecutable, is that a word, um, by the regulator to actually um, say, well, you are not taking reasonable and proportionate steps to ensure that there is no sexual harassment occurring at your workplace and we can prosecute you for it. So, as she says in her report, um, there are those kind of um, uh, hooks in place in relation to workplace safety, health and safety laws. Unless we get the same prioritisation associated with this, there won't be meaningful change. Tony, I might just um, halt you there. The, the next slide deals with best practice examples, and then you've got a um, the key quote from the Hughes and Hill Federal Court matter. Um, can I just perhaps go to the last slide and give you uh, 20 seconds, Tony, to tell us a little bit about the um, the workplace training that you've been leading uh, in our group here at, at, at HSF? Yeah, well, um, but thank you. Well, Thanks, Anthony. By the way, you're not going to let me go without talking about Houston Hill, only to make one point, and that is the federal court is aware of the issue and liability for damages um, is on, on the agenda. The courts are saying that damages awards in discrimination cases aren't high enough and they need to be increased. So that's really the, the take out from that. And thanks, Anthony, for the opportunity. Uh, our online training that we're conducting this year is, has been massively uh, successful. I'm, I'm amazed how, how well it's um, been undertaken despite the technical, technological glitches. So um, there's some information there. If any of our clients want to, want to uh, understand our, our final program for this year on employment law essentials, it's being uh, conducted on the 7th of October. So please let us know and we can give you more details. Thanks, Anthony. Very good, thank you. Given the time, we'll close off. Can I thank everyone for, for dialing in and let you know that the uh, recording of this webinar will be on our website, uh, as will the slides. There's just a couple of questions we haven't got the time to get to. I'd invite those folks who've asked them to call me. I'm more than happy to, to discuss those with you. Uh, thanks, uh, Tony, Nat, Kirsty, and Drew, and good day to you all.